You're listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church of Van Walsteen. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. Amen. I love to worship with you. I look good today. Thank you, worship team, tech team, everyone who uh, serves and um, makes uh, a typical Sunday uh, possible. We're so grateful for you. And um, if you have a copy of God's Word this morning, I would like for you to join me in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 21. Matthew, chapter 21. We've just uh, completed a Sunday morning sermon series called Rhythms. Uh, Hopefully the fact that you are here today uh, with uh, your Bible in hand, whether that is a physical copy of God's Word or you're holding it on your device, uh, you'll follow along on the screen Uh, Hopefully that is a rhythm uh, that is common uh, in your life. I think it's important for us to gather. And if there's anything that we've learned over the last two years of absolute weirdness uh, in this world, uh, it's the need for what we are doing right here this morning. Amen? Um, I I think back, and it seems like long ago that we were in here with about 10 people preaching to a camera. Um, but at the same time, I, I value our being together and uh, love to see you, love to worship with you. Well, during this time of year, Holy Week, uh, we naturally think of the final days and hours uh, in the life, the earthly life and ministry of Jesus. And we should meditate on these things. I hope that you will uh, prioritize some time this week uh, to stop and look at uh, the, the gospel accounts of Jesus, uh, the, 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 the final weeks and hours of his earthly life. We call the events surrounding the arrest and the trial and the crucifixion of Jesus the passion of the Christ. For those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, the events of these final days could really be described as the way of victory. The way of victory. Scripture tells us, Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says, it's through Christ that we have the victory. Uh, Any victory that we uh, we experience, spiritually speaking, is because of Jesus Christ. Uh, And so we're familiar with that kind of language here in the early days of spring. Those of us who are college basketball fans, um, uh, we know about March Madness when 64, 66 teams, I guess now, Uh, They are trying to achieve the ultimate victory of a national championship. And uh, the journey to the top is often referred to as the road to the final four. Uh, It's a journey. And all those teams start out uh, that first day of practice. And certainly their coaches, uh, they want to instill in those players. They want to, to, to have a culture it says we, we want to move toward winning and ultimately move toward winning a conference championship or uh, ultimately winning a national championship. And they make sure that they know that doesn't come easy. It comes with a lot of pain and in some cases suffering and, and hardship. And it takes a lot of work and, and conditioning. And, and if you don't put in the work, then uh, you're not going to achieve victory. And so for weeks, it seems, the talking heads 
uh, discuss and argue and present their case for who they think has the best chance to win that final game of the season to be crowned the champion. They talk about what each team needs to do in order to be the, the final victor, to win that final college basketball game of the season. I, I can't imagine that we have too many Kansas Jayhawk fans in the room this morning. Uh, if you are, you're probably a bit of an outlier. But uh, at any rate, uh, whether your team won or not, you can recognize certainly uh, the incredible amount of hard work that goes into that, to keeping a team together and, and, and avoiding the injury bug and all of the different things that have to happen and fall in place for a team to win a national championship. Now, a lot of people would look at the life and ministry of Jesus and say, how would it be possible that this guy who grew up in a little out-of-the-way out village, basically, how could he become the ultimate victor, win the ultimate victory? And so with that, what is Palm Sunday all about? Is it just a religious holiday, a religious observance? Well, it's about Jesus saying to everybody there in Jerusalem, okay, all eyes on me. It's vitally important for you to know who I am is what he is saying here. Now, now that's so significant because if you will remember in Jesus' ministry, he had kind of a, a parallel track approach to that issue with his disciples and with the multitudes. With his disciples, he would often tell them who he was explicitly and why he was, why he was here on earth, what he had come to do. I mean, you think of Matthew chapter 16, for example. Same thing's happening in that passage. And the question is, who, who is this? And Jesus comes into town. Who, who is this? Well, in Matthew 16, the people were saying the same thing, and they had different theories. And so it's like, well, he's Elijah, or he's John the Baptist, who's been raised from the dead. And Jesus says to his disciples, he makes the, the question much more personal. He says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter, remember, proclaims, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, you are the Son of the living God. And Jesus says to him, you are exactly right, Peter. And the Father has revealed this to you. But when people from the crowds that Jesus ministered to would make similar kinds of confessions, you're the Christ, you're the Son of the living God, often Jesus would say, don't tell anybody that. That seems kind of counterintuitive. You ever wondered why that was the case? The answer is Jesus knew when the, the claim got out that he was the Messiah, the son of David, the promised one coming in the name of the Lord, it was going to provoke an immediate confrontation with the religious authorities of that day, and that was going to end ultimately in his death. Now he knew that was the plan for his life, but he also knew that the time had not yet come. And you see that kind of language throughout scripture many times. The time was not yet come. The time was not yet come. It wasn't the right time. But all of his life, all of his ministry, all moving toward that moment when the time was right. And when we get to this passage here in Matthew's gospel, the time has come. The time has come. And so now Jesus is making a public declaration about things that he had been teaching his disciples for a long time. In other words, he wants everybody in Jerusalem to know what he's been telling his disciples for three years now. By the way, I would recommend that you read the parallel passages in 
all of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the parallel passages in those Gospels. Now, we recognize that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are unique. We call them the synoptic Gospels. That means really to, to see the same thing. Uh, John is a bit different, uh, but in this particular case, you can, you can uh, read all four of the Gospels. It's something that I would encourage you to do. In fact, I would say it's, it's really difficult uh, to study any one of the Gospels with any depth without looking at what the other Gospel writers uh, would say in any particular case. And so, for instance, John is the one who tells us that there were palm branches used here on Palm Sunday. This passage tells us that they took branches, but it doesn't tell us what kind of branches. And so John tells us it was, it was palms. And so you'll pick up different things from the different passages. God, uh, in, in his uh, divine wisdom and uh, in the inspiration of Scripture, uses the different personalities of these gospel writers and their unique perspective to, to kind of lay out who he is and, and why he has come. And so if you can get a hold of a what's called a harmony of the Gospels. You'll find that in a lot of study Bibles. Uh, you can see in a parallel way how each of the different Gospel writers weighs in on some of these things. And so I would encourage you to do that this week. So Jesus is trying to help everyone understand very clearly who he is and what he's come to do. That's what Palm Sunday is really all about. And by the way, I believe it was a Palm Sunday. Now this is five days before Jesus' crucifixion. They'd spent the Sabbath day, their Sabbath, uh, from Friday night all the way to Saturday evening in Bethany, just a few miles away, and now it's what we call Sunday. They would call it the first day of the week, uh, and now Jesus and his disciples are headed up to Jerusalem, so it's, it's literally the first Palm Sunday. So let's pick it up together in Matthew chapter 21. We're going to look at verses 1 through 11 together this morning. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them. He will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, the prophet Zechariah, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So our attention here is clearly drawn and directed to the question, Who is this? Who is this? Even Matthew's question from the crowd tips you off to that. The great point of this passage is take stock of who Jesus is. And he's going to make very deliberate, deliberate, pre-planned claims in this passage in order to make it crystal clear who he is. The question of who Jesus is is a question of eternal significance. It's quite literally a question of life and death. It's the difference between heaven and hell. And he is focusing our attention on that question. He is asking us to think, who do I really believe that Jesus is? Am I prepared to stake my life on who he claims to be? 
You could find yourself in a gathering of people, really, of, of, of much size at all, and you would discover, it, when asking that question, who is Jesus, you'd get a variety of answers and responses. Some would say, well, I, I believe he was a, a great prophet, a great teacher, a, a revolutionary leader, a, a religious leader who came to establish a, a new religion among many. You'd get a lot of different answers. A lot of people would say, I, I, I like Jesus, I, I'm kind of into Jesus. But the, the, the most important question is, who, who is he to you? Can you say this morning that he is your Savior and your Lord? And so I want us to consider some things as we look at Matthew chapter 21 here. I want you to notice that Jesus came claiming to be king. And in this passage, the first thing that we're going to see is that, that claim. And you see it really in verses 1 through 3. Now, you wouldn't think that at first glance. He tells his disciples here in verse number 2, Go into the village, find a donkey, tie a colt with her, untie them, bring them to me. And Jesus, who has walked all the way from Galilee down to Bethany, has walked all the way from Bethany to now within two miles of Jerusalem, suddenly he's going to get up on an animal. Now, I don't believe he does this because he's tired. I do believe Jesus in his earthly body did grow tired. Uh, he knew what it was to, to, to be weary, to experience emotions just like we do, all of those things. But I don't believe that's the reason why he calls for these animals. And, he, and, and so uh, I think we need to look at that. He would have, have already been tired walking from Galilee down to Bethany. He's deliberately choosing to ride into Jerusalem. And I want you to notice here the donkey as kingly symbolism. Now, if you've studied this passage before, this, uh, this event, we might say, in the life of Jesus, uh, this is one of the things that we sometimes fail to see here. Now, we often think, okay, donkey, that means humble, right? And there's a certain truth to that, to be sure. In fact, it's even emphasized in the quotation that you read here in verse number five. Your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey. So in our way of thinking, particularly, we would say, man, if he's coming as the king, then he should come on a, a, an amazing white stallion or something. And there should be much more fanfare, but he comes just strolling in on a donkey. But before you get there, you've got to understand that in the biblical world, for uh, some 2,000 years, it had been very common even for kings and rulers and judges to ride donkeys. Now, if a great American military hero showed up in Washington, D.C., we turned on our TVs and saw him riding in on a donkey, we would be like, what is up with this? We say, that's kind of weird. That would not have occurred to them uh, as being wrong in this particular case. There are examples in the Old Testament of judges and other rulers who rode donkeys. A donkey was considered perfectly appropriate royal animal in many cases. In fact, when you read of some of the, uh, the most wealthy individuals, it talks about the number of donkeys that they, that they possessed. And so Jesus is making a claim to kingship by riding the donkey. And it's clear that the crowd gets it. They cry out, Behold, your king is coming to you, Zion. The crowd says, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So it's clear that the crowds get the kingly symbolism here. Jesus is claiming to be king. But here's the thing. He's not the king they expect. He's not the king they expect. But what he is doing is saying, I'm not the kind of king you expected. I'm not a military messiah who's going to come and overthrow your political oppressors, the Romans. I'm not that kind of messiah. I'm not the messiah you're expecting. I'm the messiah you need. 
I'm not the king you're expecting. I'm not the, I'm not the king that, 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 you, that you think uh, that, that you need in this particular time. I, I, I'm the king that you really need. Far more than you need deliverance from the Romans, you need deliverance from yourselves. You need deliverance from your sin. And the only kind of king that can give that to you is the kind of king that I am. A military king can't give that to you, but a king who is humble enough to die for your sin can give you the kind of deliverance that you need. It's interesting to have a spiritual conversation with some people today, and when you start talking about Jesus and you approach the subject of the deity of Christ, for example, say, what is it that you really believe about Jesus? Do you believe that he was, in fact, God come in the flesh? God's son? That's different than simply saying, I believe in Jesus as a historical figure. You find a lot of people would say that, yes, I believe in Jesus. I believe that he existed. I believe that he was a, a, you know, a historical figure. But what do you really believe about Jesus? So I would say, if you find people on your front doorstep and they want to engage in a spiritual conversation with you and you're kind of trying to figure out where they're coming from, whether they're orthodox and those kind of things, one of the best questions you can ask is, what do you really believe about Jesus? What do you believe about the deity of Christ? He came as king. King of kings and Lord of lords. The second thing I want you to notice here is that Jesus came according to the scriptures. According to the scriptures. I believe Jesus had clearly planned this. And as you see it and how it plays out, he tells the disciples that they'll go to Bethphage, that they'll find a donkey and a colt tied together and to bring them. And here's the second thing that we see in the passage. He's coming as the humble king according to the scriptures. He's very explicitly doing this according to scripture. I love that language. Uh, and anytime you uh, hear someone say that we kind of need to disconnect the New Testament from the Old Testament or that our study of the Old Testament is not important, this is a perfect example of why we can't do that. You know how many times Jesus quoted from the Old Testament in his earthly ministry? How many times we see the link and the connection here between both the Old and New Testaments? It's why we sometimes say what appears to be concealed in the Old Testament is revealed in the New Testament. And we could be even more clear by saying what seems to be concealed in the Old Testament is revealed in the New Testament in the person of Jesus Christ. Some commentators would even tell us on this particular day when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, he entered through the sheep gate as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, we, we don't know that with any real certainty, but uh, it would certainly make sense. And what an amazing picture that would be to know that on basically what was Lamb Selection Day, here comes the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Christy and I had the privilege a number of years ago of standing there on the Mount of Olives and looking across the Kidron Valley at the city of Jerusalem and the Temple Mount and the gate through uh, which, uh, you know, that's now closed. And, and all. it's just an amazing picture to kind of imagine Jesus making his way uh, into the city of Jerusalem and what that would have meant. He did all this according to scriptures. The passage reads a little strange to us. He says, go into the village, tell them if anyone says anything to you, tell them the Lord needs these animals. It it's almost has a miraculous feel to it. But I don't think that's necessarily how we're to, to read it here. I think Jesus had planned this himself without the disciples' knowledge, much like he made arrangements for the upper room uh, four nights later. One thing is certain. 
This is happening exactly the way that Jesus wants it to happen. One of the things that you start uh, learning on the Sunday of Passion Week is that nothing that happens during Easter week is out of Jesus' control. Don't look at Holy Week and go, wow, things just blew up on Jesus, didn't they? (laughs) I mean, things just unraveled. He was completely out of control. That's not what we find here. He's very much in control. In fact, if you turn over to Matthew chapter 26, we're not going to necessarily turn there right now, but Jesus will say to the disciples on Wednesday, we're on Sunday here in chapter 21, chapter 26, you're on Wednesday, he says, in two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be crucified. Now listen to what happens next there in chapter 26 and verse number 5. The chief priests who were gathered together with Caiaphas and plotting to arrest Jesus and kill him said, not during the feast or there will be an uproar among the people. You get that? Jesus says, in two days I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be tried in a kangaroo court. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to suffer. Ultimately, I'm going to die. And the people who are planning to do it say, oh, we're not going to do that this week. And Jesus basically says, yeah, you are, (laughs) because I've planned it this way. My time has come. Jesus is not a helpless victim of the Romans. He's not a helpless victim of the high priests or a victim of the Sanhedrin or the Pharisees. Jesus is in complete control. And notice what he's doing. He's fulfilling Scripture. He's fulfilling scripture. If you look at verse 5 again, notice the parallel between the second part and the and part of the verse. Mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. That's what's called a Hebrew parallelism. Hebrew likes to, to say the same thing twice using slightly different words. So Zechariah is not prophesying prophesying about two animals, apparently. He's talking about a donkey, and then he's recalling the donkey, a colt, a young donkey that's never been ridden before, the foal of a beast of burden. By the way, which one of those does Jesus end up riding? The other Gospels tell you he rides the colt. So he rides the young, unridden animal. That's the one that he's on. Matthew's not telling us that he, he rode both of them here. He says that both of them had garments spread on them, but which one is he on? He's on the colt. By the way, it makes perfect sense. If you're going to to ride a colt that's never been ridden before, that you would have the colt's mother with him. But here, I think, is what Matthew is saying. Well, what do you know? All these years, because of Hebrew parallelism, we just thought it was going to be one animal. And if Jesus didn't call for both a donkey and a colt to make it crystal clear that he was fulfilling this passage of Scripture. You see, Jesus is saying, I'm going to live by the Scriptures. I'm going to minister by the Scriptures. I'm going to suffer according to the Scriptures. I'm going to die according to the Scriptures. I'm going to be resurrected from the dead according to the Scriptures. Jesus is conducting his life and his ministry strictly in accordance with the Word of God. So he's rooting these claims in the Bible itself. And don't you think that's important for us today? I think it is. Particularly because in our day and time, there are all sorts of persuasive, influential voices that claim to be Christian and will say things like, well, we need to be led into a fresh, new understanding by the Holy Spirit and away from the rigid commitment to the Word of God. 
And we're fine if it's just one resource that we, that we kind of lean on, but, but we, we don't need to have this rigid commitment to the Word of God. We want to be people of the Word. God guides us by His Word. We believe this book is fully inspired. It's a miraculous book. And here is Jesus, and He does this over and over, living His life by the book, saying, down to every detail, I'm living in accordance with God's Word. You know how many times in Scripture it says things like, so that it might be fulfilled, so that it might be fulfilled, so that it might be fulfilled? It's the fulfillment of Scripture. It's the fulfillment of prophecy. And you find in the person of Jesus Christ alone the fulfillment of all these different prophecies, all these things that have been pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what's going on here on Palm Sunday. He's making a claim to be the king, and he's rooting that claim in Scripture itself. Anytime people point you to Jesus and away from the Bible, you can be sure that's not of God. So he roots the claim in Scripture. But then finally, I want us to make this more personal now. Number three, I want you to notice the response of the crowds to his coming. I could remember... um, a number of years ago now, uh, nearly 30, I guess, uh, Tim had just been born. I got an opportunity, I got an invitation to come and preach for a week in the United Kingdom. Um, and so I needed a passport, and I needed a passport quickly. Uh, and so I found out uh, that one of the only places in the country that you could get one was in Houston, at least at that time. And so I caught an early morning flight out of Dallas, flew down to Houston. As quickly as I could get in the office there, I submitted my paperwork for my passport, and I went downstairs and started working in a cafe waiting for uh, hopefully getting my passport. While I was working there, uh, I started noticing all these people pouring into downtown Houston. And there was obviously a lot of buzz. And so I'm going, what, what, what is going on in Houston on this particular day? And so finally, uh, the crowd grew so much that I, I was so intrigued. I needed, so I asked a local, I said, what's going on down here in Houston today? He said, oh, it's the, it's the celebration for our Houston Rockets who won the NBA championship this year. I'm like, oh, so that's who's coming. That's what's happening, right? I, I really didn't know. I wasn't tuned into that. I'm a, I'm a diehard Mavs fan. I didn't care that the Houston Rockets won the NBA championship, right? So I, but, but, man, here it came. And sure enough, people just flooded into downtown Houston. And I'm starting to think, am I even going to get out of here to be able to get back home? But I wanted to know what was going on. And so you've got to think of how news would have traveled in this day. It's not like these people could look on the, you know, the Facebook group for Jerusalem and go, oh, look who's coming to town. I mean... There, there would have, in, in all likelihood, been a little bit of confusion. It's really remarkable. First of all, notice how Matthew is careful to talk about there not just being a crowd or a great crowd, but crowds here. If you look at verse 8, it says, Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. Others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. He's already drawing some distinctions within the crowd. Some people did this, others did that. Then he says in verse number 9, The crowds that went before him and that followed were shouting. He even distinguishes the people that were in front of Jesus already in the city and the people that were behind him following. Why is that important? Because sometimes, here's how we preachers will preach Palm Sunday... We'll say on Palm Sunday, everybody in Jerusalem said, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is Jesus. 
And then five days later, they were all shouting, crucify him. And, and certainly there's truth in that. If you were to kind of generalize what was happening here, uh, we, we could say that in truthfulness. But I think there was some confusion here, too. Interestingly, the gospel writers never tell us that everybody, everybody was, was praising Jesus on that day. They don't tell us that the entire city blessed Jesus. In fact, if you look at verse number 10, here's again how Matthew characterizes Jerusalem. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up. Isn't that interesting? You remember when the Magi, they showed up and worshipped Jesus at the time of his birth and news got back to Jerusalem? Remember the word that Matthew uses there? He says, all Jerusalem was troubled. Now he says, everybody's all jittery about this. They're stirred up. And so not everybody's responding the same way. Now, some of these people are probably from Jerusalem. They had certainly heard about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead in Bethany. And you know, talk gets around. That's pretty much how news traveled in that day. And so there would have been those who would have said, Is, isn't this the guy who raised a guy from the dead a couple of miles from here? And then some of these people uh, following him, probably pilgrims coming uh, down from Galilee on the same route that Jesus would have taken. In fact, they're the ones who answer when the city is stirred up. Matthew says the question that they were asking, who is this? And the answer comes from the crowds who were following him. And they say, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. You almost get the idea that the Galileans, uh, they're going, yeah, this is our boy. This is, this is our guy coming into town on the dark, representing Galilee, and here we are. I mean, we're, we're proud. But it's not everybody who's pro-Jesus. There's a lot of confusion in Jerusalem over who this is. Now, the answer that they give, he's a prophet. That's true, but, but not enough. You've got to say more than that, Right? Yes, he's Jesus of Nazareth. Yeah, he, he grew up mostly in Nazareth. Jesus grew up there, did most of his life in ministry in the area of Galilee there. Yeah, that's true, but, but what's most important is that your king is coming to you. Your king is coming to you. This is your king. This is the son of David. This is the Messiah. That's what you need to get because this is the question of the ages. Who is this? Who is this? You remember just a few nights later, John tells us that one of the disciples will say to Jesus, Jesus, we love all this stuff that you're telling us about how you're going to, to leave us and you're going to build mansions and glory for us and, and, and we're all going to get to live in this you know, beautiful extended Mediterranean villa, but, but we, we don't know how to follow you there. Wasn't that what Thomas basically said? You remember how Jesus answers that question? He says, sure you do. Sure you do. Let me tell you, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. Nobody gets to glory except by believing me. You embrace me, glory. You reject me, perdition. My friends, that's a question for every single one of us today. My hope and my prayer is that at some point in time, you have by faith professed, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and the Savior of sinners, of which I am one, and I rest in and receive him alone for salvation as it's offered to us in the gospel. And Jesus on Palm Sunday, is saying this, if you don't know who I am, if you don't believe my claims, if you don't trust in me, there's no hope for you. 
He's not the kind of king they were expecting. Not even the kind of king that they wanted necessarily. They wanted somebody who would come in and clean house with the Romans. Jesus comes to people who don't know who he is or why he's coming or what it means to, to give them exactly what they need. Sometimes it's like that in the Christian life, isn't it? You ever have times or seasons where things seem confusing to you and you're wondering, like, God, are you really aware of what's going on in my life right now? <laughs> are you aware of what's going on in this world? Like, like have you taken a break? What, what, what really is happening here? What's going on? You've, you have no idea what Jesus is doing. You have no idea what, what it means in your life in the moment. But he's coming because he's the savior you need. He's the king you need. And so all of us have to answer that question today. Who is this? Who is this? Who is this king of glory? The Lord. Who is this? The Lord Jesus Christ, the King, the Messiah, the only name under heaven by which we may be saved. That's what Palm Sunday is really all about. Who is this? Just a, just a, just a prophet? Just a great teacher? Just a, a revolutionary religious leader? Was he really the one that John pointed to there and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So if we could for just a moment bow our heads and close our eyes together. For us, this is a time of reflection on what God is saying to us through his word today. It's a time of decision. What will you do with the truth that you've heard today? How will it mold and shape your thinking? How will it deepen your love for the Lord Jesus Christ? My hope and prayer today is that if you are uncertain about your relationship with the Lord, that you would come to know and understand that apart from Jesus Christ, His sacrificial death, His burial, and ultimately His resurrection, there's no way that you could possibly be reconciled to holy God. You see, the great exchange of the gospel is that in God's grace, he allows us to exchange our sinfulness for his son's righteousness. One of the images that we see in scripture is that we get to trade in prison garments of sin for robes of righteousness, not our own righteousness. Well, the gospel is not a self-help message. Get your life cleaned up. Do better, be better, and ultimately you'll be accepted by God. In fact, Scripture says that our righteousness is like filthy rags. Think dirty laundry. So even on my best day, even on your best day, we can't be good enough. It's only as we turn from our sin to faith in Jesus Christ, the King, that we can be reconciled to holy God. If you're here today and you'd like to talk to someone about what that means, we'd like to have some clarification from God's Word. I would love 
to meet with you after the service today. We have others who would love to meet with you, to pray with you, to show you from God's word what it means to be made new through the finished work of Jesus Christ. What it means to be reconciled to holy God. Maybe that you just have a prayer need today. We'd love to pray with you. If you're watching online, we would love to connect with you and be able to partner with you in prayer in this time. So Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word today. Lord, I thank you that we do not have to try to navigate this life all the while just wondering who Jesus really is. Wondering if he really is who he claimed to be. Is he really the king? Is he just someone that I need to know about? Is he someone that I need to know personally, intimately, through a faith relationship? Lord, if there's anyone here today that has never trusted you, as Savior and Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit and the power of your word, they be drawn to you today. Lord, now we can truthfully sing together how great you truly are. We love you. We thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com. Dot com.